Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey y'all, Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. As you're hearing this, I'm traveling back to Los Angeles from Nova Scotia, where I spoke at the Esotericon. I'll have tons of content from that event coming at you soon. In the meantime, I wanted to bring you a great interview I conducted with Shannon LeGrow of Into the Fray Radio, where we speak with author Harold Burt about his book, Flying Saucers 101. We cover everything from how Harold got involved with UFOs to alien technology, Area 51, and structures on the moon. Whether you're new to the UFO topic or a veteran, this episode will surely serve as a primer or a refresher for all of us. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Harold. It's Shannon and Ryan. And then, hi, Ryan. How are you guys? Great. How are you, Harold? Such a pleasure. I am doing, fan- doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah, I was telling Ryan that we could probably do three or four shows with you easily. I mean, your <laughs> book is literally an encyclopedia. Flying Saucers 101. We were also chatting about the fact that it's a nice big picture synopsis and... Especially for someone like me that's not maybe as well versed in the UFO subject, this book is a great place. So also, you have the moniker, the UFO guy. You've been in this for over 25 years. So maybe let everybody know how you got started in this field, first of all. I would love to tell you that. Uh, believe me, when I tell you, if you had told me years ago I'd be talking to people about UFOs and alien beings, I would have told you you were nuts. I had no interest whatsoever in anything like that, no weird stuff. But uh, what happened is that in 1986, uh, I was working in the corporate world. I spent most of my adult life building and managing systems for big companies. My clients have included Pfizer, Procter & Gamble, Eli Lilly, Novartis, very large companies. 
someone gave me, a friend of a friend gave me an audio cassette and said, here, I think you'll like this. I assumed it had music on it. It turned out to be a lecture by somebody uh, who said he was a naval officer and it was about UFOs and an experience he had on an aircraft carrier with a huge craft coming out of the water. Well, I just wasn't interested in that, so I fast-forwarded it, waiting for the music. No music, but there was a Q&A session at the end of the tape. And what was compelling about it was the people on the tape were not asking questions. They were introducing themselves as former military or airline pilots or government employees talking about their UFO experiences. Well, some reason, I just, and I don't know why, I felt compelled to find out more. So I kind of tracked some of these people down and began to interview them and talk to them and go to some of these uh, events where they were speaking. And it was abundantly clear that this was real. These people were, actually, they were really, really sophisticated. They were bright. They were not weirdos. They had very responsible positions in government and in industry. So I began to study on my own uh, over the next two years. And at the end of the two-year mark, there's absolutely no question that this was real. I mean, I knew it in a way that you know how to drive a coin, kind of fighting with learning how to fight that beast and tame it. And then one day, you know how to drive the car. You know where it's going. You don't even have to think about it. Well, that's how it was for me. And like driving a car, when you're driving a vehicle, you can see things you didn't see. So for me, it wasn't just about UFOs. It was about language. It was about other cultures. It was about physics and archaeology and geology. And I found myself immersed in all of those topics that I hadn't expected or had any interest in before. So I did that. I continued research and meet with people for 10 years. I didn't tell anyone. Now, it wasn't that I was embarrassed. It was that I didn't want to take the time to claim the things that I had been learning. So at about the 10-year mark, um, my mom had asked me a couple of questions, and I began to look around to find the book to give her some, you know, a context to understand it. Because I had, and all of the books were for people who were immersed already in the topic. There wasn't anything for an everyday person. So that's why I wrote my book, and it's Flying Saucers 101, but the original title was How to Explain a Flying Saucer to Your Mom. I later changed it because it's kind of a little awkward and I one with a better title, but the context of my book is to give people a broader context. I wrote it for the everyday grandkids, too. I wanted a viewpoint that happens to the public as they hear little details, and they're so strange, they're so bizarre, it doesn't take so I people, and I started out to get people to think bigger, see the entire playing field, then they'll understand each individual little thing that they, they're hearing about, and it doesn't seem so weird. And I hope that makes a little, a little sense as to how I got into it and why I do it. I, I do it for the average person, and I particularly do it for those people who have seen a UFO, because that event changes them inside dramatically, and they can't talk about it. And the, the context and, and the example I give you is negative in nature, but it's like somebody who's been abused or battered. They, got it. they can't get any traction. Nobody wants to listen to them. And the same thing happens with people who've seen UFOs, not necessarily in, in a negative way, but they cannot talk about it. So it tells abuse. And why do you think your friend just out of the blue gave you that cassette tape? I wish I knew. I, I wonder, Harold, what, what do you think in relation to NASA about the Kepler and the Earth-like planet as the dollars are being pumped into a new SETI endeavor? I mean, this is sort of perhaps a shift in the right direction for the mass public to uh, maybe get a partial or small disclosure or a, you know, what we call the disclosure with a capital D? Well, no, I don't. I, I think it's just NASA as a program for the last 40 years, it has been um, 
it's a facade. It is, it's a PR uh, endeavor. And I'm not knocking mm-hmm. any of the people who work there. It has been strictly PR. Um, the government is not the government as you think it is. The government is not comprised of not only government officials that we elect, but it's comprised of uh, private companies, government contractors, lobbyists. So it's a very broad, big, convoluted creature that mm-hmm. nobody really has any control over. As far as disclosure of the capital B, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, I mean, just right. like the government didn't disclose that women were capable of voting, they're, they're not going to ever come forward and go, hey, listen, we've been lying to you for the last 75 years, and uh, we're really sorry about that, but ETs are real. That, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. And as Stephen Greer and some other researchers have said, it's already been disclosed. I mean, you know, the, right. the American public already knows, but they've just chosen not to know more because they don't know what to take. And the only thing you have to recognize, okay, whatever it is that we've been told to date is not complete truth. And if you just took the government documents that are readily available, even those from the 40s and 50s and 60s, those alone, you look at them, it's just irrefutable. Oh, okay, these things are real and everybody else are real. So, you know, it's been disclosed. You know, I, I think I spoke once before and I pointed out that a number of surveys have been done by CNN, Time, Roper, all the big polling agents, and they all conclude the same thing. And that is 80% of the American public acknowledges that they think that the government knows more than they're telling us about UFOs. So that's 80% of the population saying, we know they're real, but we just haven't been told the rest. That's disclosed. That is an astounding you know, number of people, if you really think about it. Yeah, you know, I cannot think of any other survey in which 80% of the American people agree on any one thing. But that has been <laughs> for 40 years. You Who would have thought it would be this topic? Years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's really incredible. And, you know, speaking of disclosure, if all of your listeners should go to YouTube and go and pull up the Disclosure Project, just pull it up and a, and a, a couple of videos will come up. One is a two-hour video. And it's done by Dr. Stephen Greer, who heads up the Disclosure Project. What that project is, is Dr. Greer gathered 500 government and private eyewitnesses and military personnel and had them testify. Now, this was 20 years ago. Signed oaths, and he put it together in a a big book, and they published it. Didn't get much track. And then he went back and videotaped all of them. And the two-hour version is phenomenal. And I've had some people go and, and look at it. Uh, I've had a copy of it for over a decade, but now it's on YouTube for free. It's two hours. It will change your life. It's astounding. And when you see that, you now know, okay, now you really know. It's been just totally disclosed to you. There's no way you can say it's not been disclosed. And Herb, your feelings on if we had, like Ryan says, the full disclosure with the capital D, you don't think there would be a mass hysteria over it, even though they say that there would be and they're trying to protect us. Well, I don't. And I think that, I think people are really sophisticated now. I mean, you've got with social media, everybody's in contact with everybody else. There's a historical, uh, timeline to this. It, in the early, when UFOs first started making their mass appearance right after World War II, 1947, by the way, they have never not been here. Okay. UFOs have been on this planet and around this planet since before mankind. It, it's in every historical text. However, getting back to 1947, these craft were showing up, flying over our country at, in craft and fleets going 18,000 miles an hour. This is immediately after World War II. Our fastest plane could only do 600 miles an hour. So there, there's a lot of fear that, you know, who are these people? What are these things? 
So there was concern, and it was legitimate at that time. The military established really quickly that, number one, they were dangerous because if they were dangerous, they would have already blown us up. Number two, they were intelligently, piloted craft, and there were people in sight. They learned that by unequivocally by 1947. As time went on, the, the approach changed. It became very, very political. It became self-serving. And the reason for keeping the in public is now we're in greed. Because uh, once you realize that there are people visiting here from someplace else, you're going to know they didn't stop at the Arco gas station on the way in. And so that's going to change the entire economic dynamic of the planet. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to happen. You know, so it's the public is really, really smart. They're, you know, they they are attuned to things. Yes, there are always going to be some people that will run naked in the streets. But I, I listen, and people, if you uh, educate people and you give them information, you know, when, when I when I first started researching UFOs thirty years ago, if I mentioned that, if I happened to casually mention it, which I normally didn't, but sometimes somebody would say, "Oh yeah, Harold's researching UFOs." Oh my God! If we're in a social situation, the look in everybody's eyes was total fear. Mm-hmm. Completely the opposite. In fact, I avoid mentioning it because I can't go on with the rest of my evening because they just—that's all anybody <laughs> wants to talk about. Okay, and that's a good thing, yeah. you know. But it just—you know—but it—it shows the shift. The public is more than capable of handling. Finally, maybe things are changing a little bit. The mindset of of at least more than the eighty percent. Maybe that would be nice. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Here's the great thing about it: you you don't have to wait for the government to do anything. In fact, every every step of progress we've made in industry or politics has not come at the behest of the government. It still comes at the behest of the people. Yeah, sometimes we get bled out with taxes, but we we still have a modicum of control and uh, dynamic to be able to make things change. The government did not invent social media. They did not invent Google. They did not invent Apple or Microsoft. The people did that. Now, Harold, I mean, uh, piggybacking off of government, uh, y- you covered in your book the, the 1958 Brazilian NFO sighting. Uh, yeah. I think it was about 50 or so uh, seamen witnessed a large dish-shaped object, and you have a photo in the book which was... Ugh, chilling, to say the least. Um, or even the president of Brazil at the time vouched for the authenticity of the photos. Um, now, why do you think it is, and I think you mentioned later in the book, that Brazil is one of the most open and transparent governments uh, to acknowledge the phenomenon and to study it? Uh, why do you think that would be Brazil of all places? Well, it, it, Brazil, and, and I'll tell you also Mexico. Right, um, right. All, all of your Latin American countries, their country, number one, they don't have the fear level. I could say that pretty categorically about most other countries. Um, they don't have the fear level that we have in the United States. And I, I've talked to people from all kinds of countries that have come in. I, uh, there's a lady that I met from Ukraine, and, and I asked her when she when, when I met her, I said, what, what's different or what did you find surprising when you moved your family here? And she said, you know what? I'm shocked at how fearful Americans are. They're fearful about everything. And she said, you know, that's what I, I'm, I came here to get away from, and I've just been really surprised by that. But in answer to your question, Ryan, number one, the culture is not a fear-based culture. Number two, they, they, these countries, Mexico and Argentina and Brazil, they do not have this overwhelming military presence and focus. 
And so what happens when you have even that kind of um, that heavy footprint, it keeps people in fear. And many ETs have told people that they've been in contact with, the reason that we don't do a lot of massive flyovers, particularly in urban areas, is because whenever we do that, we get chased away by jets. So that's why we particularly don't fly over the United States as often as we would some other countries. And so it's the fear of the populace seeing the jets racing out, and they they don't want to cause that kind of commotion. I mean, they, the ETs, they don't want that kind of commotion being caused by chasing them in and out of the country. If you go to Mexico City, there are never not UFOs over Mexico City. Mm. Air traffic controllers in Mexico City will tell you, we would be shocked if we ever came to work and we didn't see UFOs on the radar. But, and there have been videos taken of these for days. Millions and millions of people have seen them. The reason for it is there's a, there's a uh, volcano outside of Mexico City known as Mount Popo, which has the highest electromagnetic field in the world. And so UFOs are constantly going in and out and around that area. They're always over Mexico City. They're never not there. So, you know, it's just a different culture. Nobody's chasing them away. Nobody's fearful of them. Here in the United States, it's the response. You know, people don't freak out about seeing the UFOs. They freak out about the response. So, Harold, I, I know you, you say they've always been here. So what then, from our perspective that we know so far, why are they still hanging around? Why are there the sightings? And what might they be doing? Well, I, I think that all planets go through an evolution, not only you know, flora and fauna, but but cultures, you know, people, humans, ETs, whoever's living there, there's an evolution. A planet uh, grows and, and the people along it grow, just like you go from adolescence, teenager to adulthood. And I think that this planet is going through that stage, an evolutionary stage, in which now it's time to be brought into into the family. Now, adult, college, now you need to know how to decide. The same kind of thing. But they have to do it. There's a protocol involved. And what I encourage people to do is to think Bigger. There's not just one group of people visiting. There are trillions and trillions of inhabited planets throughout the universe. And there have been uh, at least 30 different types of ETs on our planet, regularly, routinely reported. Some groups attract us, say there have been 60. I think it's closer to 30. Um, I think that, you know, if you, you add in some of those, some of those are drones, some of those are robots, some of those are what I would just call creatures, kind of like if you brought your pet dog, uh, things that we've never seen before. Uh, but there are many different types of people that have been here, Some, and they're here for different reasons. If you go to the airport, you see a bunch of people coming through the international terminal. Some are coming here to school. Some are coming here to take a job. Some are here on vacation. Uh, they're all here for different reasons, and I think the same with ETs. Some of those reasons we couldn't begin to comprehend. Um, and then some are here strictly for observation, and I think that there are also protocols in place for, for contact that have to be approved or not approved, just like an indigenous tribe in the Amazon Basin. Some of those tribes have never been exposed to the outside world, and there are protocols as to how close you can get to observe them uh, so that you don't interfere with, with uh, that development of that tribe. So it's just bigger. It's not that complicated if you could just think of it instead of, you know, one group of people, think of it worldwide, you know, 200 different countries, thousands of different kinds of people. And now I wanted to jump into their technology and how you explain how they travel here. But before we get into that, I wanted you to mention the man that you met in Las Vegas at a convention. His name was Thomas, and he told you an interesting fact about, I guess, his job, about what he had, you know, 
the interaction he had had with a specific kind of aircraft. Absolutely. Uh, at the time, I was working for a big uh, medical company, and one of my customers had built a big medical facility in Las Vegas. I had gone out there for the grand opening, and they had this big fancy affair with a string quartet. I had already seen the facility. I'd been in it before the grand opening, and they, they did a big introduction, and then they took everybody on a tour of the facility. Well, I didn't go on the tour because I'd seen it. So I stayed in the lobby. There was one other person, a man, who was also in the lobby. So we introduced ourselves to one another, and you know, I, he asked me what I did, and I told him, and then I asked him what he did. He said, well, he was there because his wife was the interior decorator of the facility, and, and he'd already seen it as well. So I asked him what he did, and he said, well, he said, I, I don't, I'm not in the military, but I do work for the military. So I said to him, I said, do you work out of Area 51? And he was shocked. He said, Area 51, how do you know about that? How do you know about that? Because at this time, virtually nobody in the American public had heard of Area 51. And I said, well... You know, I kind of have this little hobby. I, I, I research UFOs. And he goes, oh, my God. So I said, do you work out of S4? He said, S4? How did you know about S4? <laughs> Which is a, like, it was a really top secret area. Nobody knew about it. And so he pulled me aside. He looks around. There's nobody in the room. It's, it's pretty calm. Nobody is, but he's looking around to make sure there's nobody in the room. And he says, listen. He said, let me tell you what I do. He said, I'm a photographer and I'm a cartographer, which is a map guy. And he said, I have a bunch of clearances. And he pulled out his wallet. And he, he had 10 or 12 different cards, military tech cards. And he said, I have some clearances even that I don't even have a card for. He said, so what I do is they call me, and then they'll pick me up, and they'll board me blind on a bus, or, you know, a blacked-out bus with the windows covered. He said, I was one time boarded on a craft, which I thought was interesting. He didn't say a plane. He used the word craft. And uh, he said, I don't know what it looked like. He said, because I boarded blind, I never saw it. They put me in a, in a window with my camera and my gear. And he said, I went from here, meaning Nevada, to Europe and back in under two hours. What? Now, <laughs> now, now when he told me that, that was in 1991. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason I share that is because that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are, when I say us, I'm just going to say kind of collectively humans on the planet, usually our U.S. military is involved. We have technology that is well beyond what you could even imagine. It just has been divulged. And so I don't like to go into too many details until I kind of paint a broad picture. But that is, that's a classic example. That's the tip of the iceberg. Many people have come forward, you know, and said, oh, man, this, that's nothing. I mean, that is absolutely nothing. I try to keep people focused on, look, let's just stay with the basics. Let's just stay with the fact that there's something bigger here that is already available. Um, the technology involved, uh, and I know, Shannon, you have some questions, so I'll let you do that. The technologies involved, some we've been co-developed that they've helped us out with, and some they just, you know, they have that they don't share with us. And we've been able to witness, uh, you know, regular people see these amazing while they're out camping, and they're just unexplainable. Yeah, actually, Ryan, go ahead first with yours. It ties in very well. Oh, sure. I mean, well, I think Harold just brought up a good point. It's sort of like the the... The ET technology, it seems as if they're sort of keeping their ace in the hole. You know, they, they're willing to depart from some of their technology to perhaps influence us, but, you know, maybe not all of it. Uh, because then, you know, we're sort of on the same level as them. We may never catch up, but great point, Harold. Um, I also wanted to, to add about, uh, about Area 51. Uh, you also covered briefly in the book about the lawsuit that was filed against the the quote unquote base, as it were. Um, 
Could you perhaps touch on that, Harold? Give us a little backstory on how Area 51 became part of a lawsuit and who sued them, in essence. Well, Area 51 has compartmentalized. No one person knows everything because they, they want the people working there and they, they, board, they fly them in blind every day and they, they uh, do their duties. Well, there were a number of people that became very seriously ill working on some projects, which were not divulged, and they wanted to be taken care of, and they wanted to get some compensation because some of them were dying, and they just weren't sure what they were being exposed to. So the lawsuit was to force the government really to pay damages to the people who were injured. In order to do that, they were going to have to force them to open up the the books as they were and reveal what they were involved in. Well, that that wasn't going to really happen. Uh, but I think at the time, President uh, Bill Clinton was president, and one of the things that came out of the whole lawsuit process was a was a revelation that Area 51 was only, first of all, it's not just a U.S. base. It is a consortium of a bunch of countries around the world, and they have access to information from that, too, and that there are other similar basis in other countries that have classified the same way as Area 51. They just don't have the notoriety. People just don't know exactly where they are. So that was the basis of the lawsuit. It, it really wasn't intended to get people to, to break open Area 51 and reveal its existence. It was really designed to help these people who were getting ill. Uh, and right. as a result of that, the threat was that it would have to be broken open. But that, that wasn't ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in in terms of also, you know, environmental aspects, Harold, you also mentioned FEMA. Uh, what do you think the connection is with this organization and where exactly all their money that isn't being put into disasters, as it were? Where is that money going? How does it connect to the black budgets uh, in terms of possible UFO technology? Um, it, FEMA has been a, it's a funnel. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of uh, directors of management of budget who have retired from service in the federal government. And after they retired, they said, you know, there's a ton of money that nobody ever goes. Congress doesn't know where it goes. I was the director of the budget. I don't know where it goes. And one of those that kept being identified was FEMA. You know, this this money, I'm tracking this money down. $80, $90 billion, and I don't know where it went. It somehow went to FEMA, but, you know, I look at their books, it's not there. So mm-hmm. FEMA was, it was basically a funnel for a long time. I think people kind of caught on to it because every time there was an emergency, FEMA didn't have any money. So I think it's been moved around a lot. But I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. I have a personal friend, and um, he had read my book. He said, listen, I want to tell you something. He's a, a corporate business guy. He said, my, my dad worked for FEMA. And so we lived in the Midwest, and you know, my dad uh, this is just an ordinary guy, but you know, occasionally he would be two or three. He's just out of the blue, he'd take off, and he'd come back. So he said one day after he and his brother became teenagers, brother TV said, okay, Dad, what exactly do you do? Mm-hmm. And so he looked at them, and he looked at the TV set, and on the TV set was Henry. And if you see those films right there, he goes, huh? he goes I was in a room with them yesterday. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Dad, what happened? Dad never said another <laughs> word. Never said another word. They never repeat. And he and his brother to the stage going, we still don't know what he did, but we know he worked for FEMA. <laughs> <laughs> I love how people who work for these organizations are so, you know, vague and clad. It actually gets sort of a rise out of it as well. <laughs> right. You do have to see humor in it. And it's, it's really like a 1950s stopper, but it really happened. But but what's really what's mm-hmm. really cool about it is, you know, there are a lot of documents in 
photographs have been released. I'm working on a book right now. I've been prodded to do this for many years. I've probably decided to do it. It's almost done of your photos that have been given to me by military people. Oh, and, and I like that. Just the age camp, that kind of thing. And the technology then it was really different. You know, you couldn't scan at the at the, at the quality levels that you could do. Uh, they're actual prints. They're not uh, they're not negatives. But um, the book will focus strictly on photographs that were taken prior to oh, I think nineteen all before prior to nineteen ninety four Photoshop. Mm. Because I people and it's the stories. It's not the photos are great. But the, the key to, uh, about the photos, it's the story as to how the person went about taking the photo. Because that was before cell phone cameras. I, I, I'm telling you, as an older person, I have never run into my house to get a camera to take a picture of anything. And most <laughs> people my age never had done that. Now, it's ordinary because everybody has a camera on their cell phone. That wasn't the case. Be, I mean, there could have been a fire in the door. Nobody ran into their house to get a camera to take a picture of. But in these cases, hundreds of, of these photos, they tell the story of this thing that they saw was so phenomenal, so mind-blowing, they ran into the house to find the camera and hopefully that they had one the film in it. Mm. So it's, it, 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 it is the dramatic stories of how the pictures were taken. They weren't photoshopped because there's a long history of the existence of the photos. Um, and the, the original photos that I began to get came from Colonel Wendell Stevens, who since passed away, but he is typical. His job was to gather UFO photos for the Air Force. I later found out, I didn't know it at the time, he was also involved in UFO recovery crash incidents, many of them. Uh, but a lot of these artifacts and photos have been smuggled out of the military and out of NASA because what... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Whenever they were collected, they were being burned. I mean, they were literally being put in a bonfire and burned. And what was the people who were in the military, that was really egregious. I mean, there's, there's secrecy. There is, you know, maintaining a decorum. 
But when you start to burn one-of-a-kind artifacts that may be useful historically later, that's like burning the Library of Alexander, and they just couldn't handle that. So they would smuggle these things out. And it's happened in all of the major agencies, some of the, the folks that smuggled over to Europe. But um, thank God to the, to the people who did that, because the legacy that they're going to leave is absolutely astounding. Great. I really look forward to both viewing and reading that book, Harold. I think it says a lot, too, about, you know, sort of the perception of the witnesses. You know, you hear these these amazing stories about the experience itself and the fact that we'll have photographic evidence to go with the story that that only lets credence to the story. And it also shows us the how the perception of the witness can vary from the photo itself. You always hear these cases where they have this amazing story of what they saw and they go into great detail. I saw windows. I saw uh, three distinct lights on each end. And then you see the photo and sometimes it doesn't match to what they they had seen. Um, again, not saying that what they photographed it what they saw, but I think that says a lot about sort of the, the consciousness aspect of the phenomenon and what one individual perceives when they're looking at this object and other might. So great. Yeah, I really and, look you know, forward to that. Yeah. And Ryan, it, it, and I think what, what is really exciting, I mean, I, you know, some of these I hadn't been through in a long time since they're playing them out. Like, oh my God. I forget about that. I forget about that. Uh, and, and when you see the numbers of them, I mean, just the staggering and the story. You know, the, the people who had cameras with them, like in their car, mm-hmm. they were law enforcement people. They were EMTs. They were architects. They were landscapers. They were all very extremely responsible people. That's why they had the camera with them. Because the ordinary person, I didn't carry a camera with me. The ordinary person didn't, didn't do that. And a lot of them were Polaroids. And I used to work for Polaroid. I worked for Polaroid for five years. and What's great about a Polaroid is that you cannot manipulate it. There is, it's impossible to manipulate the image, and there is no negative to manipulate. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you know, our big customers at Polaroid uh, were law enforcement. I mean, every police officer, every highway patrol officer had a Polaroid camera. So they could document evidence or and mainly traffic accidents. But they had these for all throughout Canada, all through the U.S. and Mexico as well. Polaroid, Polaroid, lot of Polaroid pictures that were just in in a series. A series is very, very different. One photo, that's okay, that's great. When you see a series of photos that you can track slowly moving across a bank of trees, Mm. it it looks completely different. You go, oh my God, you know, there's no way that got fake in 1958. So, Harold, what you're saying is a lot of these are previously unreleased photos that most people have not seen. I would, you know what, they've been available, some of them have been available, but unless you were immersed in the UFO field, you know, UFOs are a niche topic. I'm immersed in it, so I've seen them all, and I knew about them, and, and I collected them, and I made contacts with people. Um, I would say I showed them just a small group, uh, maybe just, I mean, I've got a couple hundred, but I showed um maybe five or ten to a couple of friends of mine, and, and they were just shocked. They were blown away. We couldn't even get beyond the five or ten. I didn't tell them I had like a couple mm-hmm. hundred. <laughs> they just went to five or ten, and they were like, their, their heads were reeling. So there's, there are three things that people are not aware of. People in the UFO research field are very aware of them, and they assume the public knows about it and the public is discounting it. But that's not the case. One is photos. They have no idea how many full-color photos there are, how many uh, black and white uh, crystal clear photos from the 40s and 50s are. Uh, 
they also are not aware of all of the government documents which are readily available to the public. And one of the repositories is run by a guy named John Greenewald. It's called theblackvault.com. And he has gathered all of these UFO documents. I have a number of them. Just when you see the drawings, they're from the CIA, they're from the FBI, they're from the NSA and the precursors to those organizations. And you can see them in 1950, 1960, 1970. You know, what they're saying, hey, this is what we saw on the military base. You know, much less what people have told me firsthand, but that, the, the photos, the government documents, and the other book that I'm doing, I wasn't going to reveal, but I'll tell you on your show here, I'm doing a book of UFO headlines from newspapers around the world, um, which I'd also collected, and I, quite frankly, I had forgotten about. I have a big file of them, and I started going through. Oh, my God, they're staggering. They're just amazing. Um, because, you know, what happened in the United States is like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, newspapers started to conglomerate and they started to, you know, not release local things that were being seen. But that didn't happen in Australia, Germany, France, England. You still had a lot of local newspapers who, if somebody from the town today saw this thing, you know, they knew John. They grew up with John the farmer. He was their buddy. They knew he wasn't lying, so they put it in the paper. So I had all these reports from all around the world, which are just, quite frankly, some of them I had not even read. I just collected them. As I went back and read them, I realized, had I read that newspaper report at the time, there were some things in there that had never been seen before, that had never been divulged, even in the UFO community, and I probably would not have believed it. Now, 30 years later, I know that those are true because they've been seen worldwide. But there were these local newspapers with these full descriptions of what their friends and family and neighbors had been seeing. And it, it's just an, a, a remarkable catalog of history. That's so, amazing. Yeah. yeah, that'll be too exciting releases. So, Harold, do you think those will be out within a, a year, two years? When do you think? Yeah, no, I, you know, I want to get them done. Um, my, my deadline is to get them done by the end of December and it'll be published like for January or February. And um, it really, I mean, I've got all the materials there. I'm, the layout, it, what takes the time is the layout. And, um, but that's happening at, at a pretty rapid clip. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at January 1st. That's wonderful. And I'll keep you posted. So as it comes out, I'll send you guys a copy. Great. <laughs> the perks of having a radio show, That's Shane. right. I know. <laughs> With exclusive divulging of new books as well. That's right. You heard it here first. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Harold, in fact, Going off that, sometimes the detriment that technology is as far as people that want the truth and they don't want to just see another fantastically hoaxed video online, you know, floating around Facebook and YouTube. Have there been any videos that have come out recently or even photographs that have caught your eye that you think might be might be real? Actually, there are quite a, there are quite a few, but, but I'll tell you what I, I do. I've made a conscious decision because I do presentations and workshops. And uh, I think what I want to do is make sure that my readers or attendees don't get don't get blindsided or caught in the blitz. I exclusively focus on events that happened before Photoshop because, quite frankly, if I see a video, I can't look at it. I mean, you see a CGI video, I can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really can't. I mean, now, so what I try to do is I try to look, okay, well, it's a smart one. What people doing? That that really helps a lot. And so I've seen some remarkable things coming out of Europe that go, that's real. Not not just because of the video, but because there are certain markers that I use that I don't divulge anybody, um, certain things that happen in UFO events that 
public is just not aware of. They've never heard the term. They've never seen it. They don't know about it. So when a person is, you know, out in the field and they take this video and they're exclaiming these these markers, pretty sure it's real because there's no way they would have known about these things. There's just no way they would have known about them. Mm. Some of them are, are, are just inexplicable. Um, and one of the things that, that I'll share with you that I, uh, I really like computers. I mean, I like what they can do. But one of the things that's great about computers is they gave us a language and terminologies that we can apply to everyday life to describe things that we couldn't describe before. So, for instance, um, you know, when people see things that they, they just defy physics, here's the way I like to explain it. Imagine that you open up a document in Microsoft Word. There's certain things that you can type into Word, all right? Now, Ryan may step over and open his computer and open up Excel, a spreadsheet. There's certain things he can do in that spreadsheet that, you know, maybe you can't do because you don't have Excel. You've just got Word. So, but Ryan, if he's got both programs, he can seamlessly move back and forth between two programs and do things. Now, suppose Ryan also has Photoshop. Oh, that's a whole different ballgame. There's all kinds of things he can do, things that were unimaginable 15 years ago. Well, our ET friends can do that in real life. It's like moving through different programs. It doesn't seem possible because we don't understand the other programs that they have available to them. But it's, it, you know, once you begin to see that, it's, it's not that complicated. You just don't have that technology level. So when you see a beam of light literally go through a tree and then they make a right angle, you just can't believe that that's possible. But it, it is. And it happens all the time. But that's because these people can move through different programs and do a spreadsheet. And we're in, and we're in a word we can't do a spreadsheet. Yeah, and and it's a perfect segue because I still want to stay on technology, but now I want to go back to theirs. And one of the biggest arguments for skeptics or scoptics is there is no way that they can cover that distance in in the time that they would have to do, right? In in the time they would have to yeah. do it. So, can you explain how they're able to do that and why it is possible that they're here? Absolutely. Here's my best explanation. First of all, time and distance are not related, at least not the way that you think. Let's say we're in, uh, it's 1830. If you had to go from New York to Los Angeles, it would take you six months at best, okay? Nowadays, on a plane, what's what, four hours? Hey, how about you're on Skype? It's a couple of seconds. The same thing. You have to get out of the old thinking of things. Listen, 10 years ago, YouTube didn't exist. 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. So you can't judge future technology strictly on what you've already seen in the past. You know, after the Wright Brothers flew, years after the Wright Brothers flew, Scientific American still said flying heavier than air flight was impossible. And it wasn't true. It was very possible. It was already happening. So, you know, we already have technologies far beyond what you think we have. But let's talk about um, getting from here to there. First of all, I mentioned Microsoft Word, Excel, and Photoshop. Literally, you know, if you are in, if you have access to all those programs, you can move seamlessly between the three programs. Those are the different realities. I know people like to use the word dimension. I tend not to use that word only because when you say dimension, it, it sounds real science fiction-y and everybody has a different idea what a dimension is, so I'm just going to use the word moving between programs. ETs have routinely told people in the U.S. government and individual contacts where they when they're asked, where are you from? They normally won't answer that, but the answer they give is we are much, much closer than they think because they're not moving these 
tremendous distances the way you think. They're moving, for lack of a better term, interdimensionally, uh, and they have different ways of doing that. Some, you know, uh, propulsion is an outdated concept. Look, I like cars. I like propulsion. You know, it's a guy thing, right? You know, we call them the, we in, in the UFO community, we call them the propulsion guys, okay? As opposed to the spiritual people, right? It's the same thing. They're both, it's both physics. It's just a different viewpoint of physics, but they both are real, both physics. So I'll give you, I'll give you a concept that you may not have heard. All of these different people move by different ways. Some of them have like stealth jet technology and some of them have biplane technology and they hitch a ride. They all do it differently. Not every civilization that visits here is at the same level of technology and it hasn't all been sheared across the board. So some of them hitch a ride on larger ships and use smaller scout ships. There's another aspect about what I call propulsion. Propulsion with some of our visitors is tied to navigation. They're one and the same. So the way in which it works is, um, how can I put this? It's like sending out a rubber band to a point in space. Let's say you want to get to Pluto. You send out an electronic or magnetic uh, band, and it stretches out to Pluto, and then you release it on your end, and pop, you're almost instantaneously at your destination. And that's one of the ways that they travel. And that's why there have been so many crashes. There have been a ton of ET crashes throughout the last 40 years. And that's because calculations get miscalculated, and sometimes they come in too hot and they crash. So in the early 1947 years around Roswell, the military determined that our newly developed radar, in fact, would throw off their navigation systems and the propulsion would crash them in, into the uh, air. Hmm. So it, it's it's not impossible. They just do it differently, and it's not a motor. <laughs> you, know, you have to get out of this thing about it. It's a, it's a gasoline motor, and you have to travel these distances. It, it, it just isn't true. It doesn't work that way. As far as the moon goes, you bring a point that the moon rocks and the dust seem to be completely different because the moon rocks are over a billion years older than the Earth to start off with, but then the dust is a billion years older than the rocks? Yes. Um, you know, I'll keep it really broad. The public has just not been told the truth about the moon. It's very similar to back in the days of um, Copernicus when he discovered that the Earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. And then Galileo, 30 years later, discovered the same thing. Both men were threatened with their lives to not discuss that. And that information was withheld from the public for over 300 years because it was felt that, number one, they couldn't handle but number two, how are they going to adjust all the societal things based upon those out-of-date theories? Well, we have the same thing happening now. I mean, if you suddenly tell the public... Uh, that the moon is not what you think it is. I mean, it, that's a little disconcerting. There's been no preparation for it. But I can tell you flat out now, if I were a high school astronomy teacher, I would get my class to just focus on the moon. Number one, focus your telescopes on the moon nonstop. Forget about, you know, let the Hubble take care of the deep space stuff, okay? <laughs> They'll get you the images. Just focus on the closest body close to you and then do a little research. 
just look into the things that NASA has openly acknowledged about the moon. The information I got is not classified. There have been many, many studies. Um, there's a, a technical report, it's R-277, in which NASA, they, they looked at all of these lunar events, over 5,000 of them worldwide. And people, astronomers in big-time observatories were seeing, they were seeing craft moving across the moon that were four and five miles in diameter, lights, bridges being built and, and put down. There are, and people freak out when they hear this, there are tons of artifacts on the moon. And prior to the Apollo space missions, the uh, NASA sent around Voyager and Orbiter spacecraft, and they photographed every single inch of the moon, including the backside. And I'm just going to remind your listeners that there is no dark side of the moon, with all due respect to Pink Floyd. It's not dark. The sun illuminates it. It's perfectly visible when you get around there. But the moon is a really odd thing. It, can, it does quarter turns so that the same front always faces our planet. That's very, very unusual. That's exactly the characteristic of a satellite. It's the same thing that happens with our satellite that we launch. It's not a natural spinning like most of the other celestial bodies. So the moon has a very interesting history, and these things are, they haven't been hidden. They just haven't been um, broadly proclaimed because it makes people uncomfortable. The other thing you could do if you're a high school astronomy teacher is go online and start pulling up information from the ESA, which is the European Space Agency. They have phenomenal things. Just looking at the moon, then you're going to realize a lot of these anomalies and a lot of these things that happen on the moon also happen to other planets in our solar system, including Mars. So now when you, when you start to look at that, when you hear about, oh, there's an obelisk on the moon that clearly was artificially built, it doesn't sound so strange. If you hear it now, most people don't. There, there's a sh the Shard, which is another, it's a five-mile tower. There's a tower, the Shard, the Obelisk. There's all kinds of structures on the moon which clearly are not naturally occurring. And a number of uh, geologists have looked at photographs of the moon taken by NASA, the space agency, and they go, here's why this is not a naturally occurring geological formation. And they'll show you the, the ratios of the angles and the sides, and they say, you may find one geometric shape or two geometric shapes naturally occurring in a single rock, but you're not going to find four and five. But that's what you see on the moon and in some places on Mars, that these are artificially constructed things. And um, once you begin to see that in the broad context, then the other things that you will learn about don't seem so far-fetched. And I encourage people to do that before I start talking to them about the very specific things, because it ends up being, quite frankly, not believable. You just don't have the foundation to understand it. Good point, Harold. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to mention, Shannon, a... I think your approach to that is extremely responsible in terms of looking at the simple facts first. I mean, you could even go so far as saying, why was the space race so rigorous? We got there and then, and then it just completely dropped off. We never went back to the moon. What? 30 years? Uh, yeah. isn't that bizarre? That is yeah. really strange, isn't it? You start to wonder why, what did they see there? Uh, uh, I believe you mentioned Timothy Good, uh, speaking to an astronaut who said that they were warned not to go back by what? 
we don't know. Was it just, was there another space station already there or something set up, the bridges, the shards, everything? Um, you have to look at the simple facts first of 30 years we haven't gone back to the closest object to our Earth. And uh, it's very interesting, yeah. And, and not only that, you know, I'll tell you what, there are a lot of mainstream um, discoveries that they appear like, you know, you, you kind of have to look for them. The printed newspapers don't have them. And you kind of have to look on the back pages, maybe in the Huffington Post, and you'll see a little blurb in the, the mainstream science section. But it's, some of the stuff is really, really dramatic. It's shocking. For instance, I'll, I'll give you one thing that's recently been discovered, and it hasn't been broadly publicized, and, and not all scientists and astronomers want to concur with it. But there have been a group of very responsible scientists that have done all the mathematical calculations, and they have concluded that the moon does not really revolve around the Earth. The moon really revolves around the sun, but it does it in synchronicity with the Earth. And that's different. I mean, it, it sounds a little subtle, but it's a big deal. It's, it's not subtle. It's, it means that the whole galaxy, our whole solar system, is structured differently right. than we thought. You know, those are things that are, they're available in mainstream sources. And so now, once you put that on top of the broad field that, oh, okay, you know, we don't know, we haven't been told a lot of things, but here's another one. And you start to put them on a bulletin board, and then you start to see these, these correlations. You go, oh, my God. You can also do that for our own planet. Our entire planet, this Earth, is covered with pyramids. They are everywhere. They are in every country. And you only know about the ones in Egypt, okay? They're not the only ones. A lot of them are underground and understand, and there are responsible scientists utilizing uh, massive space satellites to do kind of like a, you know, like a CSI where they're, where they're using an alternative light source. They can see beneath the sand. And they can see foundations. They can see pyramids underneath the sand that have been un- not had not been co- uncovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can also see foundations of civilizations along the Nile. So what? Well, they thought there was maybe two or three hundred thousand people along the Nile. There's like ten million. So the mm-hmm. history of our planet is not being divulged properly, and the the solar structure of our solar system is not being divulged. And I think it is to the detriment of every young person who hopes to move into science. There are amazing things, and you don't have to. Some of the greatest scientific discoveries now are happening with amateurs, people at Mm. home who are going outside the box and willing to use their young people who are using their computers. They say, wait a minute, this doesn't calculate right. So I just, I encourage people, the moon is a great place to start. Um, it is it is a, a, a linchpin to our very existence and the fact that we're not alone. We never have been alone. And my contention is, Shannon and Ryan, whatever you're passionate about, whether it's ending world wars, whether it's ending hunger, disease, the linchpin to all of those things is recognizing that we're not alone and we never have been. Once you use that key, everything is solved. Like, boom, just like that. But it's not gonna, you're not gonna be able to do any of those things totally until you recognize, hey, we're not alone. That would be like us in the United States assuming there's nobody else out there. That's insane. Exactly. Yeah. Just look at the facts. Uh, 
it's such a uh, a profound thing you just said, Harold, but it can be stated so simply. And I think that's it, exactly what you're doing with your book and with your lectures and the research you're doing. It's 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 fascinating. It's also very refreshing for like Shannon and I, younger researchers out there. You know, we're in our early right Shannon early 30s <laughs> uh and that is considered young in this quote unquote field and uh yeah. what you're saying uh, that amateurs are the ones making these discoveries it's because they have the technology at their fingertips to use satellite archaeology to use certain technologies like this to see what is below the surface and what is forgive the pun in the fray you know we mm-hmm. are looking beneath the surface and looking at the moon first and working our way out is exactly the approach I think people need to take. So again, kudos on that chapter. I I think it was, it was great. Well, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. And sorry for the inside joke there, Harold. Uh, Ryan and I actually share a birthday. We both were born on August 8th. So that's why we were laughing. Oh, well, happy birthday. Oh my God. (laughs) That's fantastic. Congratulations. Synchronicity at its best. That's right wanted to reiterate to everybody that this book is fantastic because I'm, I have a ton of podcasts that I'll listen to and books that I've read. And, you know, you can't help but feel sometimes very, very inept and, and lost a lot of times when they're talking because they're so just, they're all over the place with names and dates and, and places. And you feel like they're already 10 miles down the road and you're just, you're at point three and you can't really keep up. So this is an incredible book. Well, thanks, Shannon and Ryan. It, it, it's available on Amazon.com, Flying Saucers 101. And by the way, there's a, an e-version, electronic version. Mm-hmm. So I have it on for $2.99, $2.99, so it's really easy, downloadable. Um, but, um, you know, I think the best part and one of the things that I like most about my book is the bibliography. No matter what you're interested in, I wanted to make it a resource because I don't really expect anybody to sit down and read the whole book. If they do, great, but... I really, it, I, I like to think of it more as like an encyclopedia that something comes up. Oh, what, now what is that about? What is that Roswell mm-hmm. thing? Boom, they go about the chapter, go, oh, there it is. And then there's a bibliography. Here's where you can go to get more information. Uh, I don't have a lot of, um, uh, links on there. When I first started writing the book, the internet was still at its infancy and the links are changing so rapidly, um, that I just let, listed the, you know, the printed editions, but you do, the authors are all there and you can pull people up. And, and I might say that the UFO researchers, talking about amateurs, you know, none of those people, they're not really making any money doing this. I mean, some of your, your most famous people, Stan Friedman, Bill Burns, I mean, I know all these people, Stephen Greer, Jan Harzan, uh, John Mack when he was still alive, Bud Hopkins when he was still alive. I honestly feel that these people, Linda Moulton Howe, these people are the equivalent of the founding fathers that signed the Declaration of Independence. They are that level. Now, back in the day when the Declaration of Independence was signed, there were people, they didn't really, you know, know who Ben Franklin was. So a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. They didn't They didn't ever imagine that these guys would ever be famous. Well, it's the same thing now. One of these days, these individuals who have done this, these amateurs have done this phenomenal work, they will be household names. I'm absolutely convinced of it. When the public recognizes, oh, we're not alone. Wow, who discovered this? These people. Let's go back and look at what they did. So exactly. you, you, you have a... You have an amazing opportunity to. Some of these people are still alive, <laughs> so you know <laughs> Stan Freeman's still alive, Jan Howard's still alive, Bill Burns is still alive. So these people are still around and available. So you can pull up their websites, look at their body of work, 
uh, if, you know, whatever you feel you're interested in, absolutely continue to investigate. And Harold, did you want to also plug your own website? It's flyingsaucers101.com. I'm willing to come back anytime. I've really enjoyed it. And anytime you get, listen, you don't have to wait to come on air. If you have a question, just call me anytime. Thank you, Harold. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on with Ryan and I today. Yeah. Thanks, Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks, Shan. Thanks, Ryan. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to check out Harold's book at flyingsaucers101.com. Be sure to also check out Shannon's incredible podcast, Into the Fray, on all major podcast outlets and at intothefrayradio.com. Somewhere in the Skies is on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and also on Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. All past episodes, articles, news, and contact information are all at somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you here next week, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.